If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. This series is sponsored by our friends over at Safer Roads GM, helping us to keep ourselves and each other safe on the roads of Manchester. This week, I'm joined by a much-loved Mancunian character and drummer in factory band Deruta Column, Mr Bruce Mitchell. Bruce talks about his lifelong friendship with Anthony H. Wilson. Tony was ten years younger than me. He ruled the route since I miss him every day. And he describes the excitement for the future of Manchester music. What a marvellous time in Manchester now. There's like 12 gigs little gigs operating around the city centre nearly every night. It was a great pleasure to welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester, one of the hardest working men in the city of Manchester. <laughs> in terms of the music, theatre and art scene, that is, he's there. There might be welders that do more work than him or bricklayers, but Mr Bruce Mitchell, old friend of mine, uh, what a pleasure it is to see him. I know you keep him. Nice to see you, kid. <laughs> it's true what they said, though, because you're also, I mean, you are a musician in, in, in your own right, as well as part of the Deruti column in recent years and before that, the Albertos that we'll talk about. But you're also... 
omnipresent around the city. You're I'm a roadie, Clint. A roadie. Spell it out. You sort of are a roadie, aren't you? Yeah. In fact, did, did, hardest working man in the show, but you make me sound like James Brown. <laughs> the stuff that you do is hard because you're involved with like the stage, uh, setting up stages and events for people. So you'll often see Bruce walking across Albert Square with a stack of microphone stands over his shoulder. Oh, uh, barriers. <laughs> yeah, barriers, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. But it's great to see you. We're going to be talking about your childhood, your career from the Alberto Illustrious Paranoia right through to the Rooty Column. And we're going to talk about the city of Manchester and about Anthony Wilson, who you had a, a lifelong friendship with. And uh, I, do, I do believe there was times you had the, you had the odd fallout, didn't you, here and there? Not really. Every now and again, he had to uh, take me to task. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he did that with a lot which, of people. Which is a bit shameful because Tony was 10 years younger than me, but right. he ruled the roost and uh, I miss him every day. Yeah, <laughs> we all do. The city misses him, doesn't it? Let's talk about right at the beginning. Uh, tell us about where you were born and when you were born. I was born in Didsbury. Yeah. And I was there till the age of eight, Clint. Right. I wasn't getting anywhere. So <laughs> I then moved out to Withenshaw. Right. And uh, that's where I went. Uh, my father was a, a teacher and musician like me. He ran a little bit of a, an agency. We played string bass, drums. My uncle was a drummer. And then uh, I became a player. I fell in love with music. In my teenage, early teenage years, I would uh, lie in the bass bins, the bass bin speakers that my father had, yeah. listening to the music that was important to me there. So is this 1950s or early 50s, mid 50s? Before the Second World War. Where are you going with this, Clint? <laughs> when you were born in 1940. That, That's yeah. me, yeah. Yeah. So that your first music, would it have been jazz, would it have been rock and roll music, the first music you were exposed to? The first thing was... Um, American jazz virtuosos, uh, West Coast, yeah. East Coast, Jerry Mulligan on the West Coast, Chet Baker, and then Charlie Parker, Miles, and all the drummers that came with them. The drummers were of main interest, yeah. but I was uh, playing along to the, the musical I liked, yeah. and bongos or whatever I had there. My father bought me a bit of a kit, and then sent me out on doing gigs, doing weddings, and uh, and then the school I played in this in the school orchestra, yeah. and I was shite. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to now, where you're actually pretty good at it, aren't you? No, I've I found a way of <laughs> bluffing my way through. <laughs> You've done all right, boys. Done good. What school did you go to? It was called Didsbury Central. Okay. Then it became Didsbury High. Then schools. Then Clint. There was the secondary for the Dumbos, and that was that. But I managed to get into a central, which is one up, and yeah. then high school issue, a brain box. Or grammar. Did, I, they, have, did they have grammar schools back then? I didn't get that good. Yeah, I, I went to grammar school back then. Yeah, didn't, you didn't do would. Well. I, I passed the 11 plus. I can't even remember what, what it was all about. But I got sent to grammar school. I didn't really uh, I couldn't, didn't I, take to I it. I couldn't even count 11 plus. No. And uh, so what stage did you start playing drums, and how old were you when you got your first? I suppose, uh, you know, when I 13, 14, I did my first gigs. <laughs> I did my first gigs for my father because he would have a gig. Then he'd have to take another gig on and he would send me to do the other gig. And I had to wear an evening dress suit yeah. and organise the bride and bridegroom or whatever I had to do. Uh, and I was, his, I was his front man. He used to dump me outside the gigs with my drum kit <laughs> and go and do his gig, then come and collect me in the middle of the night. <laughs> 
when I was out back on the pavement with my drum kit. <laughs> was it was it like child labour? Did you actually get a lot of pleasure out of it? I wanted to do it, yeah. and also I was terrified by my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point you played the Cavern Club, didn't you, Liverpool? Three times. Who with? Uh, did you know the cabin, how it was originally set up at all? Yeah, it's not the same as it, it is It now. was originally like a, the owner, he liked Bebop, stuff like that. Bebop didn't bring any tickets in. He started putting trad bands on and that did business. Trad bands used to sell 1,000, 2,000 tickets a night. I was in a trad band. <laughs> and then the support bands, there's one particular year where a trad band would sell the tickets Support band would be a Mersey Beat combo. Within nine months, the trad bands were supporting the Mersey Beat combo. <laughs> yeah, marvelous twisting period. Yeah, and I, I was always proud of the fact that I worked the cavern a number of times then. And then eventually, when Roger Eagle took over the the knockdown building, it was uh, another great period. And then eventually they rebuilt it, and the last gig I did there was. Working for Donovan. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. As a drummer? Yeah. Sometimes they'd have bass and drums. There's three three caverns been in existence. Yeah. <laughs> and you've played all three of them? Yeah, and I was, I was very pleased about that. Going back to when you were playing in these uh, trad jazz bands, that, did you do records back then or was it just all live work? No. There's no records of Bruce no. back then? The only people selling records were Kenny Ball, Acker Bilk and... Chris Barber. We were watching Kenny Ball uh, on TV the other the other night. Me and my he always wife. had great bands. Incredible music. Very nice man. Yeah, Kenny Ball and the jazz. What a really good hairpiece. Eventually, <laughs> you met Keith Moon at some point as well, didn't you? How do you know that? Did my research, oh, man. Uh, no, <laughs> when the Who would be doing a warm up gig to go to America, uh, they would do them here, and uh, all that happened was be a support band and. Uh, and they were so unreliable, you know, Mooney was very unreliable. Mm. So they always wanted to do a sound check. So if I was there, I'd do the sound check. And uh, On his kit? Fuck. That's right, you can swear if you want, man, it's a podcast. Bloody <laughs> fucking hell. It's, does this interest you? Yeah, of course it well, does. Absolutely. Keith, I, want, I want pictures, man. I want Keith, pictures. Keith Moon always had quite a big kit. Mm. And he had all the heads very slack. And I don't know if you know what this means. But to make get a sound out of... A big kit with slack heads. Yeah. You've got to have enormous sticks, and the energy of the guy because just sound checking them used to exhaust me. <laughs> no, they, he wouldn't even be there. You know, yeah. They were doing well if he showed up at all <laughs> for the gig. But, but, <laughs> but sound checking that kit was serious hard work. Amazing. You know, the sound guy would shout up, "Bruce, you'll have to hit them." <laughs> <We're not, laughs> Mooney likes to hit them. So it's in the sixties all this uh, all this period. Yeah, but were, it was a very, very busy music scene. There yeah. were bands everywhere. And what were the venues back then in Manchester? Church halls, every, every you've got to remember the Beatles played St. Bernadette's on Princess Parkway. Really? Uh, but there was many, many bands. Very often uh, what they call semi-professional bands. Guys that worked as engineers uh, in factories and they would put a band together for themselves. Mm. They would put all the money into buying a vehicle, buying the combos, buying the, the matching suits. They would rehearse all the time. Hundreds of them yeah. going around doing gigs. It was an astonishing period. And if you were going out to see anything, if you went past the church hall, you would see in the in a window a little poster that said, tonight, a beat group. 
two and six. <laughs> or tonight, a beat group, five shillings. Yeah. It'd be sold out. And they'd all be playing covers. Yeah. So the first time I saw you at work, musically, was um, 43 years ago. <laughs> 1976, uh, Tony Wilson. I think it was the Granada Reports. It was the What's On part of Granada Reports. Yeah. Talk about this band that were doing a gig that weekend. And it was Alberto. He lost Trios Paranoias. Yeah. Doing uh, Jaws Dread or Dread Jaws. Yeah. And I remember yeah. watching that just thinking, I've never seen anything like it. Because I was really. Well, it was the big. first or second album, that for Transatlantic. Right. And I followed your band subsequently. One of my favourite memories of any gig I've ever been to, I've, I've told you this before, is. A gig you did at the band on the wall, probably 1977, maybe 78, where you, partway through the gig, partway through a song, stood up, threw your sticks out above the audience, and as everybody reached up to grab them, the sticks went back to the stage because they're on big elastic bands, and back into your hands, and you carried on. Um, listen, I'm Mr. Musical. I'm Mr. Vaudeville. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was the crucifix. I don't you... do that with Dorothy Column, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vinny wouldn't like that, would he? Um, but the, I think the same gig, he pulled out a couple of crucifixes, well, like real crucifixes, and started drumming. Oh, I'm in trouble for that you... on the Reading Festival. Really, yeah. Oh, yeah. For being sacrilegious. What do you think? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. F- fond memories of the Albertos, yeah? Oh, yeah, it was a marvellous time. Yeah. You know? And... There were people I knew, and it was it was originally just three guys. It was CP, yeah. Jimmy Herbert, Bob Harding, uh, and I joined them for the Glasgow CND rally, uh, and then I was locked in for years. Anyway, <laughs> we did a lot of stuff. In a good way. Oh, yeah. yeah. CP. CP made me laugh non-stop for nearly 16 years yeah. until he went loopy. He's still funny now, though. and he's on our list of people to get in for this podcast as yeah, well. Yeah, so. good luck with that. Yeah, and you did it, I mean, success-wise, you got to great level. You had your own TV series for a little while. Which yeah, Teacher called Teach You Have Gibberish, yeah. yeah. I remember that being quite a quite a scoop, really, for a local bunch Wilson of... Wilson hated the first two shows. Did he? And then started to change his mind. He was recognising there was a secret artistry going on right. that nobody else recognised. Was Tony responsible then for that series? Was it him that put that together for you? No, it no. wasn't his game. Right. No, Tony was always very, what's the word, very supportive. He mm. he supported the Lord Buckley show that I was a producer on, CP did. He, he would support us in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Uh, just amazing entrepreneurial drive of him. Nobody else would want that stuff. Right. Wilson wanted it. Yeah. I would force it through. Brilliant. Fabulous. He did a, at least one American tour with it. Did it coincide with John Lennon getting assassinated? You were in New York. No, we were doing this. We were in uh, America doing the Sleek show. It's called the Snuff Rock Show. Yeah, Sleek. And a few days before the opening, our theatre was opposite, opposite the park, and uh, Lennon got shot. And bearing in mind, some of the listeners might. And the show was about a rock star dying on stage. Absolutely, and it was it was a comedy. One, it was like a comedy musical based around the idea of death on stage. But yeah. there wasn't a lot of joking going on right there. I was going to say, that was the end of the tour, wasn't it? The uh, New York, no, like, was it? It was a very big financial undertaking. Right. Lots of people put money in. Pink Floyd put money in. Really? Police put money in because they'd just broken. Yeah. Uh, and all those musicians supported it. Did yeah. the radio slots for, shots for it. And then, uh, yeah, and, then, and then there was the assassination. Was it, is it right that John Lennon was due to come and see one of the shows? Not that I know of. Okay. He, he was he was very busy. And he he just rediscovered his mojo. That's Lennon. Right, yeah, Did you know yeah. that? Yeah, he was at the and he, powers again, wasn't he? And he and he you know he'd seen the B fifty twos and he thought, oh, this is my music. And he he went into the studio and recorded Double Fantasy. And while he was doing that. Uh, he was finding himself again for yeah. what he wanted to do. And did some of his finest work at the end there, didn't he? As well. 
they took it very badly in New York, I tell you. Really? Yeah, you know, everything people stopped. Just, people just left work yeah. and went into the park and it was freezing. Yeah. To, they all went into the park to sing and it went on for weeks. They're still singing. Now, we were there a few months ago, me and my wife and kids. And, and still, did you have a sing song? No, there's still there's constantly a busker sat by the shrine, the, um, yeah. the Imagine Garden. Constantly, I think they must have an arrangement where I'm going to busk for an hour. When I walk away, the next busker comes. And you can see the next busker waiting patiently behind a bush. Yeah. But it's just constant. And I assume it's probably 24-7 even now. Let's talk about um, punk rock. For me personally, I mentioned before that when punk happened in 76, it was for me a big Whenever turning you, point. What date have you got for that happening? I was aware of something bubbling. I didn't go to the free trade gig, but I went to the Electric Circus in December, just before Christmas, went seeing the Sex Pistols on the Anarchy Tour. Yeah. With the Clash and the Buzzcocks support and Johnny yeah. Thunder's Outbreakers. What a marvellous time. I was only 17 and that moment was like, for me, bang. That was it was, like it was for me. And it, I mean, because you'd seen a lot of scenes coming and going, like you'd had like 50s rock and roll and the jazz stuff you've mentioned and the beatniks and the hippies and the, the mods and the rockers and all that stuff. But why was punk different? Why did it change our lives the way it did? It happened before, you know, really. You know, the psychedelic era was a, a, a period where the psychedelic era was an amazing thing uh, and very often not recognisable. What a big bubble it was. Yeah. But uh, the Albertos were a touring act running around Europe at the time of punk. And all of us were affected by it immediately. You could even actually you could even actually point to Pete Shelley's two note solo on that single. And we we'd have it on in the van in the middle of bloody Germany somewhere. Yeah. And we would roar our way right through this sixteen minutes <laughs> you know. It affected all of us, didn't yeah. you know, the energy of the way the musicians were coming, young musicians, young musicians that have only just learned how to unpack their instruments, basically, yeah. but they were bringing the fresh, they were bringing the, the drama, and they were, they were giving the V-sign to the, all the older musicians, yeah. as they should have been doing. And even outside of the music, in terms of the industry, all of us, you know, the way we worked, the way we've operated as people since, it all changed because of punk, so people could didn't go Didn't sell many records, you know. The most important thing about it was its youth culture. Yeah. And that's what Wilson identified straight away. Yeah. It was a marvellous time. You were in it. Uh, and there was loads of other Manchester bands involved. Roses, yeah. Happy Mondays, uh, James. There was so much of it. Good, wasn't it? Don't you think, Clint? Yeah, I still think it's one of my favourite times of my life. I mean, it was a colourful period for me yeah. personally. Uh, and it was just a beautiful thing to be part of, that old Manchester sort of uh, that vibe, Manchester vibe, it's a great thing to be part of, wasn't it? And, and just previous to that, you had you had Stiff Records who really were linking the whole thing, you know, and what they did. Yeah. They went bump, and <laughs> but they brought important stuff to us. Yeah. In fact, they, they sold more uh, Alberto snuff rock albums than uh, Elvis Costello did at that yeah. time. Yeah. You know, marvellous. Changing market, the... The business didn't really know about. You mentioned there a few bands that we were all part of that scene, and it seems to me that it's always felt like you've been a real anchor through through all these, for our generation. You know, myself, the Mondays, the Roses, New Order, the Charlatans. There's countless bands that know who you are, who you've helped personally over the years with your work. It was a, easy. It was easy, and, and and wanting to be involved with you know you're getting touched by talent, aren't you? Mm. Uh, even very often when the talent was. Um, Quite odious, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, mar uh, marvelous. Uh, what is it? What's the um, what's the appeal? Is it partly because you came from that that city and you were a musician and you needed a leg up in the early days? 
they often get bored to death with what the previous musicians had done. Right. And and also my background was anchored in you know very virtuoso musicians that uh, didn't really have a regard for anything else but their internal <laughs> placidity. Yeah. Uh, and they needed they needed the kick up the arse and they got it. Thank Christ. Because all these parties again with dance music. Yeah. A lot of people call you as the um, the other Mr. Manchester. Some people said that you should be the Mr. Manchester rather than Tony <laughs> that, Wilson. That, that was Wilson. I was trying to wind it up. <laughs> <laughs> Did he used to call you the, the other Mr. Manchester? He, when it suited his purpose, he would introduce me as things that uh, he thought would smooth me around to maybe not insisting on the next bill being paid. You were so close to him, though, weren't you? That, that you, were, you weren't just... An artist that was on his label. You, you were. Uh, I was on. I, well, so, I, joined, yeah, I, joined, I joined an LC. Yeah. And of course, I lived with Hannett. And, yeah. uh, you know, we had our own firm called Music Force, which was me, Tosh Ryan, yeah. Victor Brox, uh, Martin Hannett. That's a beautiful picture, that. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> that's, that's when the Spark of Factory Records started, isn't it? That, that era was where this beautiful thing that we're celebrating 40 years of these days. That's where it all started, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and Tony was there marshalling it. and and all the talents were going their own way. Mm. Uh, Tosh Ryan still resents the, the non-working class uh, attitudes of Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> what were your fondest memories of that era? Probably stuff I'm not supposed to talk about, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it, it was just the energy. And, uh, and, and you were startled by the sound of things. Yeah. Some of what Martin did. And he, he was difficult. <laughs> Good fun to be yeah. with. But yeah, like, so the sounds that he created were just, as a producer, were just incredible, weren't they? Yeah. And yeah. I was finding out about Martin's fame where we're in the Far East and people say, do you know uh, Martin Hannett? Manchester. Do you know Bobby Charlton? <laughs> Bobby, yeah. Did you know Bobby Charlton? <laughs> <laughs> the people ask you this, you know. Yeah. I remember doing an interview once where I described you as being... I can't remember how I worded it, but I said something like, uh, Bruce is a father figure to all of us, and, and I said, I'm not even sure that he knows. That's how we feel about him. But do you feel that? Have you felt that over the years? Do you feel like a father figure to no, some of us? No, and I, I don't want to know about it either. I'm only interested in what's what's boiling up next. Yeah. And um, what a marvellous time in Manchester now. Like, there's like 12 gigs, little gigs operating around the city centre nearly every night. Mm. Live band comes in. 80 capacity gigs, 100 capacity gigs. I think it's such an amazing thing that yeah. and people compile into Manchester. Even now. But but I'm aware it amazes me. Because yeah. people still say it's not like it was, it's not as many good bands. Well, it's it old people saying it. Yeah, it's, it's people who've stopped looking and stopped coming out, isn't it? Well, you know, they've probably got kids to bring up. <laughs> yeah, no, you should bring them to a gig. <laughs> Let's have a crash. Let's talk about Vinny. How's Vinny Riley these days? Oh, it's in good shape as of yesterday. Right. Let's talk about when you first met him. When was your first encounter with Vinny? He was in a band, a Withershaw band called, yeah. even though he's from Withington, yeah. he was in a band called Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds. Right. And he'd just been brought in to, to do that thing. And uh, that's the first time I heard his playing. Yeah. He played with a demo in, in my vehicle. Because they were punting it there, nobody was interested. Yeah. And then also Tony Bowers, the bass player who was with Alberto's and Simply Red, he he would give me cassettes yeah. that he'd recorded of Vin just doing stuff in the corner of the studio. And it's immediate. You clocked you know, it, clocked oh, it right away. Christ yeah. almighty, I'll yeah. say. 
Not a lot of people know Vinny the way that you know him. He is a beautiful spirit. He's not. Is he not? He's, he's, <laughs> is he, he's not. Is he grumpy? But, <laughs> in, in, uh, but he is. Um, he is an astonishing musician. Probably the most one of the strongest musicians I've ever known. But he's a crap pot. Is he? Uh, yeah, but listen to the notes. Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, forty albums of it. <laughs> there's, um, there's some beautiful stuff out there, and it, and it just happens like that. Yeah. And I always used to say when we were touring. You know, because he was very often fragile. Uh, I said, you have to see Vinny performing a gig mm. to realise how special he is. Yeah. He used to take my breath away nearly every night, you know, when he was good. Yeah. And he was good most of the time. Yeah. And still does it. Yeah. Still does it. But in, <laughs> in his, <laughs> like a hermit in his cave. Yeah. Well, you were saying before that he's, he's got the uh, spark again. He's got a new instrument, new guitar in there. He just lives and breathes music. Yeah. Uh, to a, an obsessive level yeah. that you can't imagine. Beautiful. Let's talk about Manchester. Do you reckon there's a, well, we, we know there's a, a spirit, a particular spirit for the city. How would you describe it? What makes this place magical? I don't know, and I'm very pleased about it because it was very noticeable for a lot of years, Clint, mm -hmm. that if you were in Manchester, it was a dead city. If you went 40 miles over to Liverpool, where they had 30% unemployment, yeah. The, the creative musical spirit in Liverpool was so much better than here. And then things started to change here. I never expected to stay in Manchester. You know, I thought, bring me kids up, then move back to London. But yeah. um, things started to happen here. And, and I don't know what it was. Liverpool still has those sort of things. Like in, in Liverpool, if you had, a, if you had a, a young, inexperienced band, the mothers and fathers would like them. The grandparents would like them. A whole different thing about the Liverpool spirit when they were when they were skint. Yeah. And there's uh, great stories about that period. And then some of the people involved, you know, like Roger Eagle, Pete Fulwell, Ken Testy, all people that took over and locked into that. Mm -hmm. At Roger Eagle's funeral, uh, Roger Eagle was a promoter and a DJ, mm -hmm. and like a Patrick Moore of music. Yes. <laughs> and at his funeral, it was 80% Scousers yes. and 20% Manx. Uh, they just took him, you know, very unusual uh, thing that was happening, Liverpool as against Manchester. Yeah. So there was a change going on with, with the population. Yeah. Anyway, the Manx started to rise. I was going to say, there was a period back then where there was no, no love between the, the Scouts and the Manx. There was a period where there was a lot oh, of, yeah, they used a lot to of love, ugly stuff. They used to love fighting. I remember like in the early 80s going and seeing bands like R.E.M. playing Liverpool and just you just me and my mate go over there in the car. You just wouldn't talk. You wouldn't say anything even in the venue. You just don't let anybody hear that we're Manx <laughs> because it's, you'd get battered. And then suddenly, for some reason, in the uh, yeah. 86, 87 region, because of some, something that started happening in the Hacienda and uh, yeah. people started, those boundaries came down, didn't they? People started loving each other. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you probably know that I did, uh, I did In the City with Yvette Antoni for 17 years. Yeah. And eventually, In the City went to Liverpool. And that was when Wilson announced... I'm now thinking that Liverpool's all right <laughs> yeah, <I think laughs> because it suited his purpose. Yeah, were... Jane Casey was outraged, but yeah. you know, there's that going on all the time, prodding <laughs> people. Can you imagine ever living away from Manchester now? Then I know you said then that you, you back in the day you thought you might move, but what about now? You won't no. move now, would you? Oh no, absolutely not. It's in my blood now. 
We need you. I've got a job here. I've got a good job. Well, let's talk about that. Let's uh, talk about the Manchester Light and Stage Company because that pretty much started your your work um, as an events uh, provider. I wanted to be a lighting guy. That was important to me. And it was because (laughs) one of these Who gigs. Yeah. It was the first time. It was Townsend that used to carry a production. I don't know if you know what that means. Where you you carry your own PA, you carry a lighting rig, and you create something special for the punter. And, and they used to put theatre lights up, and that's how the show would start. Yeah. The Mooney kit would be lit from the back. You knew it was showtime then. So I thought, oh, I want to go in the lighting business. And that's how I started. And that was... So lighting, PA, and I did a lot of it for a while. What were your proudest moments then as, uh, in terms of the events work you've done over the years? What's been the biggest or the proudest moment for you? Um... Proudest moment. Apart from putting lights up for the Inspiral carpets. No, I, <laughs> you did You did have a quite an effect on me, actually, Clint, because in your very early gigs, you would be, you'd run all your slide projectors. At the, did you have a Farfisa keyboard then? Yeah, still have. You had a Farfisa keyboard and you had all your light switches stage yeah. right. Yeah. And you used to play the, you used to switch the slides on. I personally, in between playing keyboards. Yes, I know. And, and, and when you ran out of slides, you'd put holiday slides in from your family. Yeah. And I just loved that attitude to the yeah. job. I was thinking, roadie material here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you helped out a lot because when, when we got to that stage where I couldn't do it on my own anymore, that's when we came to you and you provided us Lucas. You remember Lucas? Yeah, he that's still it. works for us. Yeah, he, he runs our firm for that yeah. side. You don't want to do music gigs, I tell you. Right. But uh, very talented. All my crew are sort of musicians, ex-musicians, people who love music. Yeah. And some gigs they'll do, they want to do, and some gigs they don't want to do. But uh, you're just specifying an attitude about where you do something for the audience and you, you create an official thing. So we used to then send flight cases of special lights out for all the bands that couldn't afford lights, but they could roll it in with the, the back line. Uh, John Squire's always had quasar zappers. <laughs> the the Mondays always had uh, 1,000 watt strobes and every tour, if it was 20, it went to 40. <laughs> uh, 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 J- James and it were more subtle. Interstellar always had disco screens and they ch- they chose them. We just sent out musicians, yeah. musician roadies that would do it right for them. Yeah. Maggie Howard went with Oasis. Uh, it, sort of, it was... Uh, it was a marvellous period. Yeah. And it's just, it's just catching a band as it's starting to happen and then they turn into something big and professional, yeah. as you did. Yeah, <laughs> did all right, didn't we? What about the uh, the developments over the city in, in the last few years? I mean, you've been through six or seven decades of memories of this city centre. How do you like the way it's changing these days? Oh, it's marvellous. But it's becoming like, like Houston, Texas now, isn't it? We've got 17 skyscrapers going down Chester Road soon. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Clint Boone? Well, it's a lot of people that will come and dance at my DJ gigs, and it's a lot of people that listen to Excess Manchester, so I'm happy with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know I, mean? yeah. yeah I, I personally like the development of the city centre, I like the way it's looking, because I remember a time when certain parts that you wouldn't walk through because you didn't know what was going to happen to you, so I like the fact that we've got oh, these I, nice little... Uh, I enjoyed that bit. Did you, the oh, dance? Yeah, marvellous. <laughs> well, I used to work at the Reno, the Nile, when I was... Because it was the only place, as a, as a drummer, that you could play our sort of music. There was only the, it was only the Mossai clubs that employed yeah. those sort of bands. It was a brilliant time. Did you see last year that the uh, the Reno was excavated? Wasn't that marvellous? Incredible, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. So this is a little... I, I, 
a little I club. Doing gigs there. Yeah, a little basement club underneath pretty much like tourist housing. So, but, three, um, three clubs in one building, you yeah. know. Did and you know that? I, I never went to it. I was uh, I missed that. I used to go oh, to the, great used, nights. I used to do the Russell Club and the Ranch and places in the city centre, but I never went out to uh, that part of Lost Side, so I never made it to the Reno. It was, it was a fab, fabulous time. Yeah. Lots of great music there. Yeah. My father didn't know I was working at the Nile Club. Uh, and when he found out, he was outraged. <laughs> but when he was young, he went there to see somebody called Lord Kitchener, a, yeah. a Jamaican string yeah, bass player. Yeah. He dragged me out and... Uh, I had to sneak back in again when he wasn't looking. <laughs> no, but the only place you could play what you wanted to play with the musicians you wanted to play with. Brilliant. I wish I'd have been there. Bruce Mitchell, if I was to ask you who were your favourite humans of Manchester ever, who would they be? Give us a few names, past or present. And the human. How are you defining this bloody human of yours? It's a, a people. <laughs> <laughs> a person. It can be a dog if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so your favourite people from this city or people that have had an influence on this city well there's been lots of them but the one I always get misty eyed about Wilson you know because I was with him to the last and um, and I always remember this Dr Johnson quote which was uh, when losing somebody how much soever mm. we valued him we now wish we'd valued him more Yes, because well, he around. came in for some slagging. Oh yeah, Tony, and he loved it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I saw it happen a lot of times, like crowds booing at him and shouting twat at him and he other words. Took and, it all in. Yeah, he did. What, what an amazing <laughs> character that is that somebody can do that and, and feed off it rather than curl up and walk out. It's it's quite fitting actually that when Tony died, you were actually very heavily involved in sorting the funeral out. Did you arrange the funeral? Ollie wanted help, you know, yeah. and it's, why wouldn't I? Yeah. Uh, now it was not that everybody involved was felt the same way, but um, and the story continues. There's lots of fabulous stories from that period mm. that uh, it's hard to get emotionally inked in on yeah. still. Oh, absolutely. I say this every day to the point where sometimes I bore myself saying it. <laughs> I mean, even even a building like the one that we're sat in now, this building yeah. in Spinning Fields, which is a beautiful building in a beautiful part of town, even this might not have existed if it hadn't been for Tony believing in Manchester the way that he did from the 70s through the 80s and onwards. It was like he made us all want to stay here. Yeah. And I do think, I'm thinking now, that as you say this, we should be raising a subscription for the statue that should go in the new development over yeah. at Granada. It's only a matter of time, isn't no, it? Having an Engel statue in the middle of Tony Wilson Place, Yeah, I'm taking that hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can move him elsewhere. Let's get, get I, I like Tangles, but yeah. I've got a better idea. <laughs> Before you go, Bruce, describe Manchester in three words. The movable feast. <laughs> I like that. Bruce Mitchell, thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. That was Bruce Mitchell. Next time, I'm joined by 95-year-old former Royal Marine Commando and D-Day veteran George Sims. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us, feel free to leave us a review as well. We always like to get your feedback. Thanks again to our friends over at Safer Roads GM for sponsoring this series, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.